should we tell uh, kids uh, that Columbus, whom they have been told was a great hero, that Columbus mutilated Indians and kidnapped them and killed them in pursuit of gold? Should we tell people that uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who is held up as one of our great presidents, was really a, a warmonger who loved military exploits and who congratulated an American general who committed a massacre in the Philippines? Should we tell young people that? And I think the answer is, we should be honest with young people. We should not deceive them. That was Howard Zinn speaking to NPR host Amy Goodman on her show Democracy Now! in 2009. Zinn was the epitome of a 1960s-era radical historian. Born into the American industrial working class, as an adult he became a socialist, a civil rights organizer, and, in part because of his experiences in World War II, an anti-war activist. But Zinn is most famous as a scholar, teacher, speaker, and popular writer, someone who believed that debunking the patriotic myths that most Americans learned in high school and college could be part of the struggle for justice in the United States. A prolific author, Zinn published his most famous book, A People's History of the United States, in 1980. It was a volume that introduced a general audience to the radical project of social history, sometimes known as history from the bottom up. High school teachers across the country, desperate for alternatives to dry textbooks, soon began to teach a people's history, but much of the book's audience were just ordinary Americans, eager to understand the changing world of the mid to late 20th century through the lens of rebellion, resistance, and collective action since 1492. Zinn's emphasis on ordinary people like Harriet Tubman and Eugene Debs inspired readers, as well as a new generation of history scholars and teachers. But a people's history and the curricular initiatives that it jump-started angered conservatives. Their refusal to displace a heroic history of the American past with a more accurate and inclusive one was fueled by resentment of the social movements of the 1950s and 1960s and a desire to turn back the clock on racial, gender, sexual, environmental, and class justice. And the popularity of a people's history made Zinn, and many other social historians who wrote in the same vein, into targets as the first chapters of a new culture war unfolded in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Indeed, in 1994, former National Endowment for the Humanities Chair Lynn Cheney sourly characterized the new national history standards that reflected these new developments in historical scholarship as a more or less invented past. While Harriet Tubman received six mentions, Cheney pointed out, Tubman's contemporary Ulysses S. Grant a president and a general, received one, and Confederate hero, General Robert E. Lee, none. Although it did come up in the supporting materials, Cheney continued, not a single one of the 31 standards mentions the Constitution. And when the Constitution did appear, students were encouraged to think about its flaws and omissions rather than its virtues. Adoption of the standards, Cheney warned, would make these politically correct myths into what she called official knowledge, and she urged her fellow conservatives to fight back. The right took up that cause, and we are in yet another chapter of that battle today. A radicalized Republican Party insists that the true, complex, and often violent American past is not only false, but divisive, anti-white, 
and intended not to teach history, but to indoctrinate helpless children with left ideology. Around the country, much of the historical scholarship that 20th century historians fought to get into the high school curriculum is being systematically and forcibly removed by methods that can be accurately described as censorship. Seven states, most famously Florida, now ban the teaching of race in public schools, and legislatures in 16 more states are contemplating their own bans. Under the rubric of parental rights, Florida has also banned classroom materials that address sex and gender, with similar bills advancing in the legislatures of 26 other states. Classic books are not only being removed from classrooms, but from public libraries. But historians, like librarians, community activists, and high school teachers, are pushing back. A few months ago, a new collection of essays edited by Princeton historians Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelazar hit the bookstores, and readers are snapping it up. In this book, Myth America, Historians Take On the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, 20 historians write about key themes and issues in American history that the right wing of the Republican Party loves to politicize but doesn't tell the truth about. From the New Deal to the Great Society, socialism to Confederate monuments, immigration to police violence and the Reagan Revolution, these essays tackle contemporary flashpoints and strip the myths away. Join Kevin Cruz, Julian Zelizer, and me for this episode of Why Now? Where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, co-executive editor of Public Seminar, and the author of The Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 14, The Past is Never Dead. Julian Zelizer and Kevin Cruz. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. So guys, you're both working in a long tradition of professional historians who have tried to persuade a popular audience to shift their ideas about what American history is and what it does. I'm thinking about Howard Zinn, Gerda Lerner, James Lowen. Can you guys talk about how this project was conceived and what kind of intervention you wanted to make? Yeah, I think a bunch of things were happening. Uh, one was just watching in the last few years as historical arguments entered into political arguments. Uh, and there was just a lot of, A, disinformation in the public sphere, uh, including from the former president when he released his 1776 uh, commission and, and the project that came from that. There was just also huge discrepancies between what people were hearing about issues like immigration and race relations with what we knew most scholars had been writing about, not for a few years, but really for decades. History was becoming, has become intensely politicized. It's always a political issue, but we're in one of those moments where what's taught in the classroom at the university and uh, elementary school, high school is now front and center in state legislative debates. So both of us wanted to bring some of the best historians forward to write uh, short, accessible essays about what we know on different issue areas, uh, so to contribute more constructively to these debates. Great. And Kevin, do you want to add to that? 
No, I think that says it well. I mean, this this is part of a long tradition, as you know, but it really is drawn out of this particular moment, and that really shaped the kind of things that we wanted to address. It was things that were in the public sphere, but you know, uh, people who aren't historians uh, would be curious about and want to know more about. Yeah. So, so let's talk about three terms that appear in the first paragraph of your introduction: lies, disinformation, and myths. These are obviously related concepts, but they're different concepts. And I, I wonder, Kevin, would you start us off by saying, what's the difference between these terms? Well, there's a good bit of overlap. I mean, I think a myth is maybe the most inoffensive of the three, right? A myth is something that we've come to believe that may not be true, but maybe isn't malicious, right? Uh, Washington and the cherry tree is a, is a myth, right? Uh, not something that's spread to distort uh, but rather, you know, the, to teach our kids honesty is a good thing. Lies are um, are, are lies uh, and, and have a malicious motive behind them. Uh, there is an intent to deceive. Disinformation, I guess, kind of covers both those categories. Just uh, information that is, uh, is not right uh, and is uh, spread in the public sphere in a way uh, that uh, distorts our debates. So, Julian, why do people lie about history? Well, I think there's different uh, reasons. Some uh, is explicitly political. There's often moments where it's convenient uh, to talk about history in a, in a certain way that is not grounded in fact, but which serves a political purpose. Uh, and I do think you're seeing some of that in debates about uh, race relations where there is an effort uh, to just wipe away centuries of racial oppression and discrimination because it serves a purpose today in 2023 about where public policy should be, about what ideas are normative and which are uh, aberrational. Sometimes I think it comes out of error. I mean, I do think sometimes we hear things that are untrue over and over again, so much so that unless you're someone such as all of us who's constantly involved in reading what historians are doing and teaching the subject matter, it's easy to just pick up on this and, and say it uh, as if it is uh, also a truth. And so there's, again, different reasons this happens, but it's very important for professional historians to be part of a corrective process. Kevin, let me just get something straight for our listeners, because what all of us do, as Julian said, is we also revise history. Every time we write a book, yeah. we're, we're creating some kind of a revision. So are the things that we're revising actually lies? That's a really important point. Uh, the general public hears the term revisionist history and thinks that's bad history. It's a lie. It's a distortion. Uh, we've conflated things like the denial of the Holocaust with that term revisionist history. But as all of us know, all good history is inherently revisionist. We go into the archives and we find new evidence. We ask new questions. We think about new um, historical actors, uh, new movements. Uh, and that causes us to change, to update, and yeah, revise our understanding of the past. So all good history is inherently revisionist history. Now, some of our essays, are they correcting uh, outright lies about the past? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, one good one to look at here is uh, Karen Cox's essay on Confederate monuments. Now, a lot of people have uh, taken to defending Confederate monuments uh, as a sense that this is real history, right? Uh, and, and we can't tear it down, and that is a danger. But what Karen shows in this piece is that these monuments were not real history. They weren't built up right after the Confederate defeat in the Civil War. Uh, they were built up a half century later in the 19-teens and 1920s, and then another wave a century later in the 1950s and 1960s. Why did they happen then? Well, that was when white Southerners were trying to spread a new version 
of uh, Civil War history, the so-called lost cause, in which the war hadn't been about slavery, but was instead about certain noble causes. Uh, it was about taxation. It was about states' rights. It was about this and that, but, but not certainly slavery. And this was done to redeem the Civil War, to redeem the Confederate cause, uh, but also to make sure that the, the contemporaries uh, that they were speaking to had a certain understanding about not the racial past, but the racial present. You look at the dedication to a lot of these memorials, and they're quite clear about the, the racial motive here. They are meant to uh, defend uh, and indeed to elevate white supremacy in the present moment. Uh, uh, and this is very clear at the time. So what Karen Cox's piece does is it shows that that was fake history. Uh, that uh, these Confederate monuments were an effort to distort the past. And the effort to tear them down is in many ways an effort to restore uh, a real true history of the Civil War and the Confederate past. If I could just jump in, I think just to add to what Kevin said, I think what historians do, what teachers do, they're making arguments about history. And when you do that well, you're making arguments using evidence. And you're making arguments in relationship to what other people have written. Uh, so it's not always about lies. It's about kind of taking a set of understandings about a period. One classic one is Reconstruction, bringing new facts to bear, bringing new interpretive uh, skills to bear, and then giving readers a very different way uh, to think about that. And, and there's a lot of essays in the book that do this. Uh, one is Michael Kazin, who writes about socialism in the United States and kind of takes on the idea there is no socialism in America. Socialism has been a total outlier of the American political tradition. He points to many moments when socialists were either very present in politics at the municipal level or the national level, where ideas that came out of social democratic thought entered into the mainstream. And you might dispute what he concludes, but he's trying to say this is not just an aberration in American history. It's actually uh, has had an impact at many different moments. That's good historical debate and argument. We are not putting forth a book that says this is the definitive way to look at every issue, period, end of story. We're bringing the historians who do that hard work and say, here's a more robust set of arguments to grapple with and an interpretation based on extensive research in the archives and in reading what other historians have written. Well, and I think it's important to say to our listeners that there are varying degrees of the kind of debate you're both describing. You know, you can do this in the sixth grade without going to the archives. And that's that's what good history teachers do, is they have their students explore these debates. So I want to turn to what I think is a very strange phrase in our profession that has moved into political life quite recently, American exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. um, that's the essay that I think quite rightly kicks the book off. Was it always just a myth? It's, uh, this is from uh, an essay by our brilliant colleague, David Bell, a French historian who bravely uh, joined a bunch of Americanists to, to talk about American history. But it's an outside perspective that I think really gives him some fresh eyes to this. Uh, and as, as David talks about in, in the piece, American exceptionalism in the mid-20th century was something largely confined to seminar rooms, right, as, as a way to explain why America hadn't quite developed along the same paths as, as uh, other countries. As, uh, you know, Marxists would have expected, there were certain stages of historical development, and America skipped a couple of those, didn't have a feudal system and so on, and, and that set us on a different path. But the term leapt into 
public discourse through two really unlikely figures uh, who uh, I don't know who would hate to be paired with the other one more. But as David uh, describes, it's Joe Stalin and Newt Gingrich uh, who bring this about. Stalin uh, helps uh, popularize the term when American communists are trying to plead with understanding for why communism hasn't taken hold in the United States because the United States was exceptional. Uh, it had deviated from these historic norms. Uh, and largely the, the, the phrase uh, came out of that context into seminar rooms and stayed there until someone escaped the seminar rooms, uh, Newt Gingrich, who was a history PhD, uh, and brought it to the general public. But in Gingrich's telling, it wasn't that the United States was merely different, it was better, right? Uh, and America was exceptionally good, uh, exceptionally great, and it stood apart from, uh, from the norms of history in that way. One of the things we want to remind listeners is, of course, Newt Gingrich had a PhD in history and taught history for a while before he went into politics. So one might imagine he knew exactly what he was doing. Julian, um, you're the Gingrich expert here. Did Gingrich know what he was doing when he repurposed this phrase? Well, I mean, I think it fits into the kinds of arguments he wanted to make about the U.S. If you think of American exceptionalism as really taking hold in the Cold War, for example, it was used, as, as Kevin was saying, not as a way to think about the differences between the U.S. and France or any other country, but about the exceptionalism, meaning the uniqueness, the way in which it was totally different from all others, and, and namely, in that case, the Soviet Union. And I think, you know, Gingrich comes of age in the 80s and 90s. He's part of this era of, of conservatism. He's putting forth a set of arguments that's trying to reclaim that after Vietnam and Watergate and all the fallout of the 1960s shattered the confidence of many in this country of thinking about the United States that way. I mean, we learned from those decades, well, we're not as distinct as we thought. We are involved in many of the same problems that other countries face, sometimes creating those problems ourselves. So it's not so surprising that this became part of the lexicon, and it's very appealing. I mean, it, it fits very well into patriotic sentiment and nationalistic sentiment. All countries do this. I mean, that's part of what David says. Every country thinks they're exceptional. Doesn't mean they are. Uh, we think of it that way. And I think that's part of why Gingrich found this so attractive and continues to uh, politically. Yeah. And Gingrich kind of got it. You can make your own history in the moment, which, which certainly shifted politics dramatically. So Kevin, um, Historical myths, I think we've established, have always played a role in politics. They've always played a role in American culture, but sometimes they've presented themselves as a scientific view of the past. And I'm thinking of some of our founding fathers, John W. Burgess, William Archibald Dunning. What kind of damage has it done to weave myths into scholarly American history? And what is the kind of damage that myth can do to historical scholarship today? Well, I, I think the damage is is, is obvious. I mean, uh, you mentioned the Dunning School, the the, the famous school that um, uh, uh, came out of Columbia University, uh, not out of the South, but presented a view of of the lost cause mythology that I talked about with uh, with Karen's piece, and certainly spread it far and wide. It's one thing for politicians or obvious partisans to be spreading these things. If historians are are feeling them as well, uh, that's incredibly dangerous. Uh, and it's not that. Uh, that was the only view. There were certainly voices push, pushing back against this. W.B. Du Bois, uh, most uh, notably, uh, um, was pushing back against this early on. But those views take hold, uh, and they take hold in damaging ways. And so 
if you look at the civil rights struggle, uh, one of the real problems uh, this country had was that we had a leadership class in the 50s and, and early 60s that had been educated at the best schools by the best scholars, and but in a myth. Uh, they were taught the Dunning School. So John F. Kennedy had, had uh, internalized this lost cause mythology about how Reconstruction was a failure and the federal government shouldn't try to force its hand uh, in, in enforcing civil rights. Well, as somebody who was trying to govern the, the, the civil rights struggle during the, the 60s, that's really dangerous, false history to have uh, internalized. It, it took a while for Kennedy to unlearn that. Uh, but that shows, I think, the damage that, uh, that historians can do when we're, uh, when we're leaning into myths and not leaning on facts. Yeah, I mean, another uh, example of that is it, it just creates weaker debates. I mean, again, we like debate. And uh, historians love to be in a seminar room and go at it about what do you make of a certain set of facts or a certain individual and moment. So um, in our book, uh, Eric Rauschway has a very interesting, uh, strong essay about the New Deal. And he goes after something you hear actually left and right, to be honest, that the New Deal really wasn't so effective at alleviating uh, the Great Depression. And it wasn't until World War II and massive government spending came along that we ended. And, and he goes through the facts and figures and just shows very clearly that is not true. It doesn't match the record. And what you gain from knowing that, and I think it's a pretty strong argument, is then you can have a good debate about what are the effects of government on the economy? Where is it good? Where is it bad? Uh, where is it legitimate or illegitimate, whatever your position, but you have to start with what actually happened. And if you don't start with that, you're just making stuff up. Uh, and that's not a very useful way uh, to learn and to educate and to have conversations about the past. Well, and I think you're pointing, Julian, to a way that historical scholarship can sometimes make its way into mainstream debates in ways that aren't useful. I mean, I, I was thinking as you were speaking of the late, great Alan Brinkley, who wrote a book that said it actually is World War II that, that pushed the country out of recession. And that is the kind of debate that's useful for us to have. So, so how can these debates occur usefully in public? I mean, look, what, number one thing I'll start is to get politicians out of this process. Uh, and I don't think it's useful what we're seeing in many states now, like Florida, where uh, very politically pointed decision making is going on that shapes what instruction should be like. We've had this in the past that never results in good things. And I, I think once you start with that and once that becomes pretty regular and, and normative, uh, then you're never going to have good public debates. I mean, when we saw the 1776 commission come out and put in, like an incredibly skewed understanding that came right out of the contemporary political sphere of the past, you could see the kind of damage that will do. So I'm just a believer, and I understand it's a little bit self-serving for all of us, that teachers and students should lead the way. Uh, and, and they should have the discussions and the seminars and the classes that gradually filter upward because students eventually go out and they are the ones who are going to tell history and whatever they're doing, if they're going to kind of be talking about it in public in some capacity. Kevin, you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I think the, uh, uh, the political factors here have, have only muddied the waters as they, as they always do. Ultimately, we're trying to help 
uh, as historians trying to help educate people about the American past so they can navigate the American present. We constantly use a shorthand about events in the past. Uh, this is the Green New Deal, or this is the next Watergate, or uh, this is a second civil war or whatever. Uh, and you've got to understand what those facts are to begin with. Uh, and and the politicians don't have uh, that same aim. They're seeking not to get a, a full understanding of the past, but rather a, a patriotic education. That's what Trump wanted, right? A, a, a version of history that only tells the good parts of America, that only talks about strengths, not weaknesses, only talks about successes, not failures. Uh, and that's a distorted view of history. And that's dangerous. Uh, if we don't have a clear sense of where we've been, we, we can't uh, see where we're going to go. Yeah. Well, and of course, sometimes we know that successes can also be failures. If you look at something like the Great Society, it actually did lift people out of poverty, but it didn't end poverty in America as it was supposed to. So I'm glad you brought up Donald Trump because you guys say um, at the beginning that, that really the Trump administration's disinformation strategies turned something that was a problem into a kind of crisis that, that mandated a response from historians. So can you talk about that crisis? Well, I mean, I think two things happened in the last few years. Look, All Presidents Lie, great book by Eric Alterman about that, and he, he catalogs it, and, and we know that. Uh, and they say things about the past, certainly all presidents that are not accurate. This is part of politics. It happens. But Trump elevated it into an art form. Uh, he was very systematic about it. It wasn't simply to even cover up one thing or to justify one decision. It was a way of talking. That was his narrative about what this country was about and what was happening in ways that were pretty egregious and have been well cataloged over the years. And I think it wasn't simply President Trump who accelerated what this was, but he had a lot of support in a party that was increasingly comfortable, you know, saying things that were not true. And then added to that was a very extensive infrastructure of uh, media platforms um, where it was quite easy to do this. And I'm not just talking about a station like Fox News, which would echo what the president said, but a filterless world of social media where it's very easy to get stuff out there and, and get it mainstream, so to speak throughout the country, throughout the world within seconds when it was disconnected uh, from facts. So you put those two together, and I, and I think that's why this feels different. Um, not totally different, not a totally exceptional, but the crisis has worsened in the last few years because of those two factors. Kevin, you know, you spend a lot of time on Twitter intervening in some of yeah. these lies and myths. Um, how effective, and I, I ask this as a similar super tweeter, how do you how effective do you think it is to make those kind of, of interventions? Well, I mean, it, it's better than screaming at the TV. Uh, I'm under no illusion that I'm going to correct or, or, or you know stop the people who are intentionally spreading uh, this disinformation. But at the same time, as Julian noted earlier, I feel like historians uh, have a duty to push back on this stuff, just as uh, climate scientists have a duty to push back against global warning uh, denial, or uh, uh, doctors have a duty to push back against anti-vaccine insanities. Uh, historians have a special set of expertise, uh, which the public is interested in, and we have a duty, I think, to bring to them. At, at times, it certainly feels like I'm mopping back the ocean. I, I think we all feel that, that it's this is a useless endeavor. Uh, but again, I'd, I'd rather be doing that than not doing that. And so it's really been remarkable on Twitter. And, and again, Julian and I and, and Claire, we're, uh, we've all done this and, and luckily hundreds of others are out there doing it too. 
But but that sh- that sphere shows, I think, just how pronounced this attack uh, on the truth has been. Again, my chapter in, in Myth America is uh, about the Southern strategy. And if you told me a decade ago, I'd have to write an essay explaining that the Southern strategy was, yes, a real thing, uh, that would have been astounding. Uh, but just in the last few years, we've had a new cottage industry on the right that, as Julian said, isn't engaging with the facts anymore, isn't trying to say, well, this fact is more important than that fact, this perspective gives us a better insight than that perspective. They're simply pretending this never happened, that there was never any such thing as the as the Southern strategy. Republicans never made uh, an appeal to white Southerners on issues of, of race and civil rights. And it's ridiculous. It's, it's obvious it's out in the open. And so I've had to do that. And that shows you just how far off the rails we are. But it's not about which fact matters more, but which fact is even a fact. People I know on the right are likely to approach this conversation from the perspective we now call whataboutism. Um, They might argue that the left reinterpreted history when they brought new actors to the stage, women, people of color, gays, and that that made history partisan. So why shouldn't they fight back and do the same things? What would you say to that? Well, I'd I'd say several things. Bringing more experiences into the history of this country, meaning capturing more of what happened, is not making things up. It's not a it's not a partisan move. What historians did since the 1960s was broaden the lens um, through which we interpret and analyze any given moment. And so in addition to studying a president who's in the White House or a member of Congress, we also study communities uh, in all parts of the country. We study the way in which uh, struggles over race and gender have played out. Uh, that's different than partisan history. It's very different than making things up history. That's just a fuller account of history. And look, I I mean, this is so different. I started my career studying Congress. And my basic argument was, even when you study Washington, we're so presidentially centered, you miss this huge institution, a lot of power. So I just brought in the lens. And I think that's what social and cultural history did as well. Obviously, uh, scholars have political positions. And I think, I don't think neither of us say they should, you know, you come like a scientist and you could just study this stuff, but that can't shape ultimately the substance of what you're looking at. And I think that's how to understand social and cultural history. Uh, It was a broadening of our canvas as opposed to uh, making up a canvas to begin with. And Kevin, what would you say? I mean, think about it this way. If you think about an old narrow view of history, of kind of a, a very pinched early 20th century version of history that focused solely on great men, that's part of the picture. It's not the entire picture. It's like the old uh, fable of the of the seven blind men and the elephant, right? Uh, and they're all trying to describe it based on this thing they've only got their hands on part of. Well, we maybe used to have our hands, there's hands on a trunk and hands on the tusks. And then in the social history, people went out and found you know the rest of it. They found the ears and the side, the legs. We got a fuller picture of what an elephant really looked like, right? Well, now there are people coming in with, you know, I don't know, holding a tuba and saying, well, this is part of the elephant too. No, that's not. All right. So there are certain things that are are giving us a fuller picture of this. I've butchered this metaphor, a fuller picture of, of what history really is. And that's good. And as Julian noted, it's not just gone in kind of what people might see as more left-wing views of, of bringing in the working class or or racial minorities, or or whatever that we've had people look more at um, uh, businesses, look at corporate leaders, as Julie noted, look at a variety of other political actors. Right? We've looked at 
uh, religious conservatives, right, have gotten their due. They used to be written out of the scholarship. They've come in too, right? So all these things are, the way in which the historical profession has expanded, has brought in all these other parts of the real picture. That is all legitimate. The people who want to say, well, this part doesn't exist, or here's this entirely fictional thing out here on the side, that's another thing entirely. One conservative critique, which I think could only strengthen the literature, would be, and you hear this sometimes, there's not enough attention to conservative ideas, for example, in parts of American intellectual history. We need more of it. Or we need to look in areas of the economy that haven't been of much interest as a lot of attention focuses on government or social movements. That broadening, the same logic, I hear that and I'm like, yes, let's let's do it. Uh, let's expand the range. That's very different than using this umbrella of wokeism and critical race theory to say, hey, let's just wipe out certain books. Let's wipe out discussions of policing and race. Those are two very different projects. The second one I find not to be one uh, that is useful or frankly legitimate. The first one, uh, yes. And, And let's have that kind of work. It only makes us all stronger. So I'm really glad you went there, Julian, because I want to bring us back to Florida, which is just today, as we're recording this, Ron DeSantis has said maybe he wants to get rid of the entire AP curriculum, not just the AP in African-American studies. But this strategy for removing materials from the curriculum, and DeSantis has a logic for this. He says he doesn't want things in the curriculum that are interpretive. As far as he's Mm -hmm. concerned, things that are woke are interpretive. All he wants are the facts. And this is a really you know, long theme among conservatives. Lynn Cheney, you know, said the same thing. So how does stripping interpretation from history contribute to myth-making? Well, I think you better recognize there's no, DeSantis said he just wants, what did he say? He just wants the the cut and dried facts. Okay, who's cut the facts? Who's dried them, right? That's an act of interpretation. He he said he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to talk about all these uh, critical race theory things. Instead, let's just note, uh, note a few brave Americans who saw something was wrong and stood up. Okay, what was wrong? Why was it wrong? Why was it brave for them to stand up? Who was going to oppose them, right? Those are all things of context that we need, need to get into, right? And it's this, this cartoonish vision of the Black past in particular that, that really is distorting our understanding of the present. So Glenda Gilmore's essay in the book, on the good civil rights protest is, is a great example of this. And we see this all the time on Martin Luther King Day. Conservatives like DeSantis will trot out the one quote they know from Martin Luther King, apparently the only sentence the man ever said, uh, all about the content of their character. And that's it, full stop. And they, they trot that out and they present King as this very narrow, sanitized, sterilized version of a civil rights leader. All he did was said racism was bad. The country stood up and said, oh, hey, you're right. That's bad. Let's get rid of it end of story, right? It's a very false view, a truncated view of what King stood for. Even if you just focus on the March on Washington speech or the letter from Birmingham jail, the things conservatives keep telling us to read, there's a lot in there about police brutality, about structural racism, about poverty, uh, about militarism. Uh, There are a lot of complaints that, that King had in there, but all of that has been stripped away. And it's created what Glenda calls the myth of the good civil rights protest, a protest in which The goals were very narrow, the politics were very popular, and nothing was controversial about it at all. And that has been held up as a contrast to what they're calling the bad civil rights protest of our own time, Black Lives Matter. Well, 
No, there's a real continuity between these things in terms of what they're upset about, police brutality, poverty, structural racism, all there from King to today, in terms of how they do it. Public protests, nonviolent protests, occupying the streets, disrupting the economy. These were all things King did, and they were deeply unpopular at the time, right? But we've got this false image of the civil rights past to make it out of reach and useless to people engaged in civil rights struggles today. And as Glenda notes, you've got to understand that full history to see those connections, which I think is precisely why people like Ron DeSantis are trying to block the study of that because they don't want it to be useful. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's, I, I, it just doesn't hold water. I mean, good history has analysis, it has facts. You need both. We're trying to say, let, let's have both in good interpretations. I don't really understand what history without analysis is. It's like, you know, it's good to teach students, well, a shot was fired in Southeast Asia in 1965 and move on and not talk about Vietnam and not talk about government policy and not talk about the war and what it meant. Uh, that's, that's not really teaching anything. And secondly, I think he's being disingenuous. I mean, I, I'm sure if we look at the curriculum he wants, it's full of analysis. He has an interpretation of the past, and I'm sure the kinds of issues he's selecting come from a certain perspective. So I just think all around, uh, it's it's hard to engage in, in this argument. I think this is just a purely political move uh, where, uh, in this case, the issue is being used to score points, to set up a presidential run. And it's unfortunate for the students, conservative, liberal, centrist, apolitical, uh, anyone who's studying that this happens and it ultimately erodes the quality of their historical knowledge. And it's as true, frankly, for someone who will end up being a prominent Republican uh, and then looking back at a past they don't actually understand as it is for someone who ends up in Democratic circles. So this is my last question, guys. And I just want to preface it by saying one of the wonderful things about reading this book is it made me so proud of what our generation of historians has accomplished. <laughs> you know, just thinking back to knowing you guys from the 80s and the 90s and so on. And it's just it's just a wonderful statement of the trajectory of history over the past 30 years. But why should our listeners read this book now? Look, I mean, first of all, that's exactly, uh, we, we talked about disinformation, why we entered into this project. But another part of it is just kind of, we are both people are excited about what historians are doing. And, you know, we live in an age when the academy is often bashed and people don't have much respect. Uh, and we think there's a lot of great historians who are working at the university. They have a lot to say. And they can say it well, frankly, and that's who we chose. And so we really wanted to showcase the generation that is coming of age now, the generation that's coming together, uh, that came of age in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, but really to get scholars who could put all the work together that has been done and to say, look, look at what we've learned, look at what we have contributed uh, to these really key issues. And and we think the authors did a great job of that. Uh, and, and it shows kind of where history has moved since the 1960s. Again, not partisan versus nonpartisan, but a broadening, a richer interpretation, a much more complex understanding of a complicated country, of a complicated past. Uh, and so why should people read? It's always good to read good history. We believe in that. I think all of us would probably agree. It's just good for your knowledge and education. But we do hope, besides the political moment we're in, this just gives people a taste of what the profession that's often struggling these days 
is doing uh, and why it's so important to keep supporting it and uh, to get students to keep learning. Uh, that was really well said, Julian. I'd agree entirely. I mean, this is a uh, this is a project that comes out of something that a lot of us have been doing online. Uh, Claire, you too, for the last several years, trying to be engaged, trying to speak to a general audience. I said earlier, we're under no illusion. We're going to convince the people who are intentionally spreading lies to stop doing it. I think the money's too good, but. There are a lot of people in the middle who I think are genuinely curious about this stuff uh, and generally want to know. And so we we crafted this book, kind of short, smart essays, well-written, no jargon. Uh, we hope to be very accessible to help people understand uh, the world around them. Uh, and that's, that's ultimately our goal. And, and I hope people will take us up on the offer. That's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to more episodes, leave a comment, or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. You can also participate in subscriber chats. You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.